Hello, you're very welcome to episode number 42 of the FNI Rap Chat podcast. So uh, this week we have Mary-Kate and Rachel Fanagan, um, two people we've been wanting to get on, to, on the podcast uh, since we started. Um, and it's great that I've finally lined up that we were actually get, able to get both of them at the same time. Uh, so it made for a very enjoyable and uh, informative conversation Uh talking about the work that they do as script editors slash story consultants they see themselves as uh, story midwives which is a great way of putting it um, we talk about the courses that they do um, they do a lot of work for uh, Screen Training Ireland and uh, they also have their own company a, a dramatic improvement so any writers out there who are looking uh, for a little bit of help to get the most out of their ideas um, you can check out their website and definitely worth checking out Mary Kate's um, stories you can find some of them on YouTube uh, from the, the Mott Story Slam she's a world champion and her stories are absolutely brilliant um, next week we're, we will have uh, Nuala O'Connor and Dermot for uh, further on to talk about their film Keepers of the Flame which is out in uh, cinema at the moment in the IFI for the next week um, beautiful film about how we remember uh, the revolutionary period and the legacy and the memory um, associated with it it's a, it's a really really strong documentary uh, if you can go see it and we will have that podcast up uh, over the next couple of days um yeah, it's Christmas time and uh, Paul Butler Lennox is busy organising the Beard Runner, Beard Runner uh, Christmas quiz for next Wednesday, uh, the 19th, um, in the Grand Social. If you check out Eventbrite for details, uh, it should be a really great night. There's brilliant prizes from um, some really, really generous um, uh, companies that have given. Uh, so we hope to see you there. And uh, now we will go to Mary-Kate and Rachel Flanagan. Hello everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of FNI Rap Chat with two Pauls and two O'Flanagans today. Two film siblings. <laughs> You're our, yeah, yeah, I think you'll be our second film siblings, actually. Great, we should have brought... Uh, Jake and Luke Morgan. Oh, very good. Uh, yeah, so one is a composer and one's a director. You would know. I know Luke, I know yes. Um, so, let, tell us... What you do, so you do a lot of things. <laughs> well, it, it seems strange, but we have difficulty occasionally deciding what our job title is. Um, Some people would call us script, script editors, editors, story editors, story, story consultants. We've often thought the story consultant sounds a little bit poncy. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, just that it can put people off the, the consultant notion. Mm. It sounds like you're coming in and telling people what to do. And we've often then they talk about script doctors in the States, but they come in and overwrite a writer. They don't come in and consult. They often get an uncredited. Yeah. Okay. Whereas um, you guide from so this from the yeah, very start. And so Carrie Fisher was the most famous of the script right. doctors. You know, mm. but you wouldn't see her credited as a writer on a lot of projects. But that's not what we do no. either. So yeah. we thought about it for a while and then we thought I think we're script midwives um, <laughs> because uh, what we brilliant. do is we know that it's the writer doing the hard labor and it's their baby, it's their production. 
but we've seen a thousand of these and we can make it so much easier if you just listen to what we you yeah, know, take yeah. a deep breath and listen and we can help you with that push. So yeah. I think that's what we've decided for script midwives. We that's like to think idea. of ourselves as script midwives, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Marika, you also write, so how much of that do you bring or is it, do you have to separate those two roles? I have to separate those two roles. You know, I've occasionally heard... Uh, people saying that they've had bad experiences with script editors and one of the bad experiences that people can have is my script editor wants to write my screenplay Mm. and it is easy enough now for me to separate those two things not least because as a writer I know what I want in my script midwife or a script (laughs) editor or a consultant Um, and I don't want them to try to get me to write their story so I think you know the positive of being a writer is that I know the pain of the writer Mm. and I know how I want to be helped sometimes if I'm working with a writer I will say hey why don't you try it on this way if they say I'm stuck and I don't know how to do that I'll go well what if it was this but I believe Rachel you would do the same I would do the same and I find the kind of thing that I offer the writer usually comes back with something much more elegant. So I'm able to express something that is a kind of solution and then they come back with something so much more elegant and clever and mm. fitting to the project and that's why they're the writer and I'm the script editor. So I just help them through that difficulty but it's absolutely their world. Coax the best out of them. Snake, uh, snake charm uh, the best yeah, out of them. Uh, but I also <laughs> think it's different parts of your brain. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Obviously a lot of writers edit themselves in between drafts and it's kind of a different part of your brain so I always feel like when you're working Mary-Kate that um, you know that you're you're either in that part of your brain you're you're in script editor mode or you're in writer mode and, and the two don't necessarily Yeah they're over. very you different skills although I had an interesting experience when I started screenwriting myself I had been a film critic for many years and what I discovered was I had to quit being a film critic even though it was a big part of how I earned my money at that time because I couldn't create and criticize at the same time when I was writing my own stuff I'd be like well this is rubbish that's really (laughs) derivative like you know why did you write that that's really on the nose you know so and I went oh I'm going to have to switch that part of my brain off entirely if I want to become a creator I have to allow myself to create without criticizing Mm -hmm. um but you know I had having been a critic Actually, Rachel was working in development. This is mm. 20 years ago now with Treasure Entertainment. Yeah. And Rachel's colleague then, the great Irish director, Paddy Bronick, had said to me over a beer one time outside the Stag's Head, hey, do you want to read a script that we're working on and tell us what's wrong with it before we make it instead of telling the world what's wrong with it after we make it in your capacity <laughs> as a critic? And I was like, ooh, I would love to. Um, because like all... Critics, I really wanted to be a part of the creative process. I should say, like, almost all critics. I really wanted to be a part of the creative process. But I discovered that working in development is entirely different mm. to criticising something after it's been made. Even, like, being a fair and reasonable and sometimes enthusiastic and cheerleading mm-hmm. reviewer is very different. And then, you know, Rachel... <laughs> told me there was an there was a discipline called script editor so i followed her come to the dark side <laughs> well the light one. side it was actually leave the dark side <laughs> of being a critic yeah. and come to the light side of being involved in the creative process so people always go what a coincidence that too in fact there are three siblings because our sister rebecca O'Flanagan is the producer um 
Who's Made Handsome Devil and Viva and Finding has a new joy. film called Finding Papi Joy. Chulo coming oh, yeah. Out. oh yeah, Papi oh, Chulo. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we. I mean, we all kind of feel like we own Rebecca's productions, even though she works most. Well, you've worked on a lot of things with her, ours. Rachel, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> it's an O'Flanagan production. We think in our heads, um, but w- people say what a coincidence that these siblings all ended up in the same industry, and I'm like, it's not a coincidence. I just followed Rachel. I just chased her. <laughs> but was the household was storytelling a big part of growing up? Massively, house. yeah, but it, it would have been very book centric. Um, okay. But but there was a huge enthusiasm for cinema. Our dad grew up in Dundalk, and it was seemed like it was the loud version of Cinema Paradiso. You know, the <laughs> town went. So he would have been very enthusiastic okay. cinema going. And and our mum too. You know, yeah, what I remember that is that television era. was terribly. Uh, rationed, you know, because at that time, it's like people are about screens for children yeah. today, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, it'll rot your brain and you're doing nothing, so if you had a book in your hand, you were always pat on the head and mm-hmm. television, you had to, you know, bargain and fight it for however. It went on after the um, Angelus, like for an, an hour, if you're lucky. <laughs> or, or watch with mother. My, you go. <laughs> our mother was English, well, so watch with mother was arrived. Like little house in the prairie yeah. in the Waltons. But yeah. normal business was suspended in our home mm. when there was a good movie on. Yeah. Oh, and it would like, be yeah, like yeah. you're you're staying up late tonight. I remember our mother with the yeah. man in the white suit yeah. and going, everyone's staying up late tonight because there's the man in the white suit is on. How you have cool to see this mother? movie. Yeah, She's pretty I, I cool. I remember the same being very young and being told we could stay up late for what she called charade in her English accent. <laughs> oh, charade, yes. the Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> Cary Grant movie, and we yeah. were allowed to stay up late. And I remember, you know, Saturday mornings where normally it would be lots of activities and get all the children. There are six of us dressed and out to the park, but then occasionally there'd be just stay in your pyjamas here's your cereal on the sitting room floor there's a cowie but a, a western my yeah, dad always cowie. called it a cowie, cowie. A cowie. <laughs> and I remember actually I was living in London in my mid-twenties but I was home in Dublin for a weekend and I'd happened to notice that the man who shot Liberty Valance was on so I organised my weekend this was on a Sunday afternoon around well I'm going to be at home in my parents house and well I got myself organised, you know, with my cup of tea and my sandwich, probably. And I sat down and from the highways and byways came all of my sisters. Three of my younger sisters were still living at home, but the other two came over, you know, and in arrived my parents. And it was like, oh, this was not just my idea. I'd forgotten because I'd been away from home for about four years. Oh, no, this is what we all do. Every single person in our family had organised. It's a wonderful, uh, you know, uh, community based experience or you know everybody a family sitting down mm. in unison like yeah. most families just have it on Christmas day where they're locked in and you know Willy Wonka is on but you we know did it, we did it quite a bit and then we moved to Copenhagen when we were kind of in our early and late teens really? and over there yeah <laughs> <How did laughs> yeah we know we grew up in Copenhagen um, <laughs> our dad was working for the IDA okay. so they were going to attract Scandinavian industry to set up in Ireland and create employment and Copenhagen was their head office for all the other uh, So Rachel would have been 12 going on 13 at that time and And I would have been 13 going on 14 uh, And it gives us great interest in all the Danish projects now obviously and Danish television at the time was unbelievably crap I mean people think that we're stepping into this tradition and long stream of Danish you know television and cinema we're we're not, (laughs) you know they've really pulled their socks up which is something we can talk about later maybe but but for us growing up then there was no, there was little to no television um, because there was very little on 
the English language, but the American embassy showed movies cheaply for their employees and friends. And we used to go up every Friday night and there would be a double bill of a junior movie and uh, an older movie. So I remember seeing things like Apocalypse Now and, you know, Brian De Palma you were films. We were really young. You had to, sw- you had to <laughs> sweet talk really the Marines to get in. I, I oh, we were good at sweet talking the Marines. <laughs> yeah. no, but but yeah. what was really we funny was... We to go to the second movie, but you could, if you put in the first one, you could kind of sneak into the, yeah, the later double bill. Yeah. And, you know, what was, was funny was that it was like offered by the American embassy for their employees because it was such a hardship to be living in Denmark and cut <laughs> off from American culture, I think, was the idea. Yeah. Um, I and think the they would have actually done it. they were very expensive. They were very expensive. Yeah, and you got in for five kroner, which was about 50p, 50p back mm-hmm. then, you know. Mm-hmm. So we'd go up with our five kroner and all the kids from our school would go up. And there was a bit of courting went on as well, oh, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. Yeah. No, you'd <laughs> see no like doubt. you'd yeah. see the people that you fancied. But yeah, we saw some really, and w- without fail, we went. Every and th- every Friday night, or yeah. almost every Friday night, so but we, we did see some really so inappropriate stuff. A huge amount of my film education came up. Do you uh, remember Coal Miner's Daughter? Yeah. I was just like, I, I, we'd never been exposed to country music. It was classical music and jazz in our house, yeah. and Buddy Holly, and I think that was just <laughs> where the rocks ended. But we'd never been exposed to country music before, and the idea of somebody just singing her life like that was fascinating to <laughs> us we just loved it and Sophie's choice oh, there were so many mm. yeah really fantastic yeah, so films. I, I associate a lot of cinema with with living over there mm-hmm. all right but certainly I don't think we ever thought about having a career in it it didn't seem remotely a possibility so no. it's accidentally formative yeah and then yeah. When, when I studied French and Italian in college and I had this amazing French lecturer called Paddy Marsh who I think went on then to help set up the UCD film school okay. um, but I did an option of French cinema with him and it was just an option but he was brilliant because he ran this course and I think really he just wanted it to be running a cinema course because he said <laughs> once you signed up for it he then said well it's a nonsense to watch f- uh, French cinema on its own so we're going to watch everything so we watched Russian movies and mm. Italian yeah, movies yeah I did the same course I was studying French and English and he projected them on the wall and his mm. wife yeah. ran in and out with lasagnas yeah, yeah. and like he was one of those really amazing professors but he was the person that to thank him showed for. me Battleship Potemkin exactly and, I was and, thinking and about taught that. you how yes. to read a film and look at all the visual storytelling that I really hadn't thought about much before but it was still very theoretical I wouldn't have known one end of a camera and have you enjoyed have you enjoyed a film since or I think <laughs> I you know, sometimes people do say you know it, when you can kind of see the inner workings or you know how it's done, does it ruin it? For me, it just deepens the pleasure. Because yeah. I think when it's done well, you just go, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's very that's clever. That's so well done. Look it, how to dodge never, that bullet. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it never ruins it for me, even though you can... I was watching something recently. I don't know, did you see Succession, the, the television series with Brian Cox? I was really no, enjoying no. it. And of course, you could tell when it got to the penultimate episode, it's a, about a family. They're like the Murdochs, this incredibly rich media family there where presidents are at their beck and call and stuff. And it's a struggle for power between the the father who's 80, who's Brian Cox, who's meant to be retiring, and the next generation of sons who have... It's just a great cast of characters and one daughter, and they're complete ne'er-do-wells who've been spoiled by all the money. But you know by the penultimate episode, it's got to swing again. You know Mm -hmm. the story's going to twist again. So whoever is on top and winning on the second last one, I knew he couldn't be... Yeah, the ultimate yeah. victor. Plus there's four seasons to go after that. So, Indeed. You know. <laughs> but at the same time, I was just going, I know he's not going to win. Yeah, but that mm, didn't yeah. ruin the pleasure for me because it was how are they going to stymie him and how are they going to... And, and how they did it, I couldn't have predicted. Yeah. It, ah. was, it was a lovely experience. I, would, I mean, I would say, you know, my taste is more refined, but I think that's true for all cinephiles, isn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. sometimes I'll go to the movies with a friend who doesn't work in the industry and she'll be like, that was fun. And I'll be like... 
oh no, it wasn't. That was very <laughs> sloppy. And you know, yeah, they yeah. left this plot dangling and da 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 da. Didn't and stop us liking must love dogs though. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we had the funniest experience. We had the funniest experience. Um, this is like more than 10 years ago and Rachel had a toddler and a new baby and her only treat was to get out once a week and we would go to the local cinema in Santry. So, you know, I pulled up, I'd go with her. I, I pulled up and I said, OK, I'm outside. I sent her a text. You knew not to knock on the door because we're trying to get the babies down. And, mm. you know, the time ticked on, but I was like, I know what is she's a new mother. I mustn't, you know, hassle her. So she came out like 20 minutes later with tears in her eyes <laughs> going, I can't even get out the door because her two-year-old been cl- clinging to her leg going, don't leave me, mammy, as though you were leaving forever. Um, and we so finally missed whatever we were well, we Whatever missed we what we planned to, to see, and, see. <laughs> and we finally got to the cinema and we went in and it's a romantic comedy called Must Love Dogs with John Cusack and Diane Lane, who oh. we have a great grow for, yeah. both of them actually, yeah. Diane Lane more so maybe. But there were very few people in the cinema, it was the suburbs on a weeknight and the... But it's quite, it's a very charming opening and they're a big Irish American family and we started really laughing. The dynamic of the family is really well written. But there were two young men in their 20s, we were in our 30s by then, roaring laughing, like just roaring laughing, just like practically high-fiving each other. And we were going... We're kind of the audience for Clearly this. Clearly love dogs. Yeah. Well, well, well or, and Diana, but like, the, you know, it's a story about a woman who's had her heart broken yeah. in a divorce. And, you know, both of them have. And w- the people of a certain age, will they find love again? We were like, we're the audience for this. You know, <laughs> they really aren't. But we started enjoying how much they were enjoying it. Mm. And then we started feeding off that. We started laughing more. And Rachel had gone from like tears of frustration to tears of laughter. We were going, well, we're just having an absolutely marvellous time here. Mm. And when the lights came up we realized that one of the brothers had special needs Ah. and the other one had brought him to the cinema as an act of kindness and you know we were looking at each other going they do do close into an experience we we didn't expect (laughs) but we did have an absolutely marvelous time so so i don't think we're we're necessarily highbrow material only (laughs) not only certainly not no but i mean one of the things i love is when despite the fact that I can't help but analyse a movie normally when I'm in it, is when I go to the cinema and I'm completely carried away. Yeah. yeah. And I can't analyse it. Yeah. And I remember that happening to me with Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. And I remember the moment that I went, I'm just giving myself up to this because I was just completely carried away and enchanted. Mm. Um, but it also happened for me with Gravity, which is not everybody's favourite film. I yeah. liked it. I, I seen it in like IMAX. I think it was the premiere in the mm. Lighthouse. And well, I was just completely sucked in. Yeah. Which ironically is what happens to the character. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but I loved it. I yeah. really loved it. Now, look, it doesn't really hold up. For, it didn't really hold up on the second viewing for me. But I, I really enjoyed it. Well, and, my and, the, and the theatrical experience, you know. Yeah, my experience of was that I had heard nothing about it. Ah, so okay. I was working um, in, in Prague, Prague where it got a release three months before it got a release here. Okay. So I hadn't read any of the pre-publicity and I was there with my American colleague who said, hey, you know, we were prepping a workshop and he said, we should we should see this movie. And then he walked me across Prague going, we have to see the 3D. And I was like, really? You know, isn't that just a bit of a gimmick? gimmick. Yeah. You know, I'm not bothered. But knowing nothing about it... I had this really fantastic experience, you know, a really immersive it experience. It still does happen. And mm. yeah, it mm. still does happen. And that's really more. And then You're I ruined it for everybody else. Tools back. That yeah. was it. Well, Martin, <laughs> don't. Take the spanner. Quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, Martin said that the next morning when we were talking about dramatic tension and why it's important and how you want an audience to be mm. 
involved with this story. He was saying, look, Ray, Kate and I, we eat, sleep and breathe movies. It's our working week. It's our Sunday rest. If you'd seen us at the cinema last night, you would have sworn we don't know how movies work (laughs) because we were climbing over the seats trying to give them their tools back. And that was how involved I was. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. Have you ever seen um, Victoria? The movie oh, that's one, one shot. Take. Yeah. Oh, the German, German one. Yeah, like yeah, the heist yeah. movie, and you feel like you're complicit. I'm like, the guards are going to come and get me. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing, which is rare these days. So, I'm just going to take a break there in this conversation uh, and take the chance to promote some of our fellow podcasters on the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Uh, so, this is one of the many, many great ones. This is Did you ever dream of being a perfect Wakefield twin? Let us show you what a terrible idea that is. I'm Anna Carey. I'm Karen Moynihan. And on Double Love, we take you through the strange and terrifying world of classic 80s teen book series Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join us every second Thursday for a new episode. How much do you think about audience when you're doing your workshops and that kind of or how, oh, how do you I approach that? Oh I think it's absolutely central it's what we're thinking about all the time and I think that's something that we would talk about that it's an audience centric approach that we use so we're not so much towards the auteur side of things you know we're thinking well, we're all t- the time we think about of how the, that land with an Yes audience. we think of an auteur in the terms of it's somebody else's originality that we want to help them give expression to but we all we we talk about the difference between self-expression and communicating. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I think it's Rachel was the first person who said it's you know you're expressing yourself when you're writing in your journal. You're figuring out your thoughts and you're telling your truth and you're clarifying your feelings. But the number of people that want to read your journal won't fill a cinema even once. <laughs> <You know? laughs> maybe your mother, maybe a couple of exes, and maybe some nosy younger siblings, you know. But expressing yourself is very different to communicating. So we always, always say it's about communicating. Because if you want, like, millions of euro or hundreds of thousands of euro, maybe for a first film, mm. to make your film, that's somebody else's money. Yeah, You know, like, if all you want is to express yourself, our sister Rebecca says... Poetry would be a better medium because that's just you and a pen Mm. and a piece of paper. But if you want to make a film, it should be for somebody, you know. And one of the things, actually, you were talking about why Danish cinemas flowered. Um, Well, I I think it was a nobody was more surprised than us when suddenly Danish cinema and television Mm. started to blossom. And we saw something was happening when T.G. Cahar bought a television series called Island Cop many Trisha years ago. Yeah, and it was and we were like, whoa, somebody's making really good telly in Denmark. But it was really niche because it was really late at night on TG Kahar in Danish. We Rachel were and I were pretty in. sure we were the only people watching <laughs> it. It was like <laughs> Danish drama subtitled but into what Irish. We then had a lovely experience through Boat Screen Training Ireland and the media programme that we went and trained on a programme called North by Northwest. Unfortunately it doesn't exist anymore, but at the time they took both script editors and writers on and trained them and we both went to do it and they did it in an island off Denmark and that was just coincidence you know that um, but it was run in conjunction with the Danish film school so we had a lot of their lecturers and it was the professors from USC but that gave us a whole insight into what was going on uh, in Denmark then and mainly it was the setting up of their film school and that they've all been trained 
in the same approach and they all have a common language. Yeah, so there were... Like the writers, producers, cameramen, everybody. There were, two, there were two visionary people. One was a teacher called Mont Rukoff and we got to study with him. I say that, it sounds like we spent years, you know, we spent a week or something, mm. you know, um, studying with him. But Mont Rukoff, RIP, I remember ringing you to say Mont has passed. Um, he co-wrote Festin which might be, you know, one of the most famous of the Danish films. Mm -hmm. And he was and one of the as well. teachers of... Uh, he, he taught all the people who created the Dogme movement back mm. in the 90s. But Moss was an absolutely brilliant teacher of storytelling. And he not only taught the screenwriters at Danish Film School, but the editors, the script editors, the directors and the producers as well. So all of the key people on Danish television and Danish cinema. They were all taught by Mons, here's how you tell a story on screen. But the other person who was part of that was a guy called Henning Camray. And um, Henning... He was in the equivalent of RTE over there in Denmark Radio. Had you it? said Henning Berg, I would have been really impressed. He was an old, it doesn't matter, an old Man United football. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry, sorry. But Henning Camry says, I believe it's it's he. Um, in fact, I got to meet him at a film festival once and he said, hmm, I think you've said it maybe made me sound a little bit better than I did. But what I always heard, it was he who said that creativity and commercialism are not enemies. There's kind of this divide in European cinema mm -hmm. that you go, I'm the creative and you're over there being filthy and commercial, right? Whereas he said creativity and commercialism are not enemies. They are a perfect marriage. There's your creativity and there's making that land with somebody else. Yeah, people have to see it. And commercialism mm -hmm. is a dirty word for something that we consider sacred, which is caring about your audience. Mm. And we mm. would say... We think that's a sacred thing and it's our prime. It's really our primary function yeah. is to go, what do you want to write? What do you want to make? Mm -hmm. And will it produce the effect in the audience that you hope it will? And it's our job to anticipate that and give you the tools to help it produce mm -hmm. the emotional effect to help in bridge the audience. That gap. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. often what I'm doing is reading for people who have already written something. I mean, sometimes I get involved even before there's a writer attached, but mm. if something has already been written, I'm acting as the first gentle reader and I reflect back to the writer what the effect is on me and is that what they want in the audience so I have no vested interest in what that is it's just to reflect it back to them and go was that what you were attempting mm -hmm. you know, so if they want to baffle their audience or discuss their audience or you know it's entirely up to them mm -hmm. I'm not pushing them in any way or being in any way prescriptive but I want to make sure that was the effect you were going for was it mm -hmm. um, and as often as not it's not quite and we need to refine it mm -hmm. it's like I always say to people, it's like, you know, looking through a, a, at a fuzzy image through a camera and all we need to do is just kind of get it into sharper focus. Mm -hmm. do, do you think there's anything to be learned from what the Danes did and to be applied in Ireland? Because it's kind of a similar population. It's a similar population and certainly they were only, at one stage, they were only having like one drama um, being commissioned a year by the main station. I mean, there's a couple more commercial stations now, so they tend to have more dramas but at one stage it was the same situation that it was all the production companies competing for one commission mm. a year and that sounds very to, familiar yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. They, and they had to uh, <laughs> attract a huge portion of the audience for that if they weren't going to get the audience figures they weren't going to be recommissioned we did a nice talk with Lisa Albert from Mad Men and Jeppe Gerwig Graham from Borgen <laughs> <laughs> to pause to remember his, his name um, 
but where they talked about their their work they were big fans of one another and they talked about one another's work which mm-hmm. was good fun um but lisa was really taken aback at the audience percentage that yepa had to pull in like they didn't have to do anything like that and never did achieve that on Mad Men. Yeah, that's often uh, one thing that comes up in conversation with a lot of filmmakers that I know. It's like it does not matter how good your submission is, how talented you are. There's all sorts of demographical information, uh, political reasoning, all sorts of you know different processes that you have to go through, hurdles that you have to jump in this country in particular, but also everywhere in Europe, you know. So you cannot take it personally if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't take Absolutely off necessarily. Not. And I mean, it's it's not unreasonable of a broadcaster to say, you know, um, you know, my audience is under 35 mm-hmm. and I know what they like and what they're not going to watch is something like, you know, was it called Last Tango in Halifax? You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to watch something about, you know, people over 50 finding love again. Mm-hmm. Just, it's not, you know, RTE audiences may well want that, you know. Yeah. But it's perfectly reasonable for broadcasters to know what it is that they're looking for and what their audiences are looking for. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I think the Danes figured out is that people will always respond to good stories well told. Mm. Good stories well told, good stories well told. And having finite resources, just as we do here, they focused. But it was really through the vision of Henning Camre and Montrukov. They focused on storytelling. So that when you look at those great Scandi dramas. Don't forget the play is the thing, you know, the play is the thing. Mm -hmm. Story is key. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think they were very clever with Dogma. That that was a great marketing tool. That they, you know, they announced their arrival in Cannes and said mm-hmm. that they were going to make films in a whole new way, and they were stripping it all back. And that actually fell by the wayside quite early on. But mm. it got people interested in them. And for a minority language like that, it was really impressive. And we've got English on our side. There's no reason why yeah. we can't. But they they set up kind of a whole. 100% they did. And as you say, the dogma rules fell by the wayside quietly, yeah. really quite quickly. Mm. Course, <laughs> you know, the Danish producers would tell you now, you are almost guaranteed an art house release internationally just because you are a Danish film. And, you know, one of the other things that they do is they really support each other. Because yeah. they're going, we've got a brand that's called Danish Film and Television. Do you think we could do a little bit more of that here? Well, I think it's interesting that somehow, you know, we would think of each other as each other's competitions and I understand each other's competitors and I understand why that is if there are finite resources. But I think it's a really interesting thing. There were a couple of things that we learned from Yepa and some other Danes that we still work with and alongside and stay in touch with. One of the things was how democratic they are. Like when Yepa was talking about Borgen, that was the... um drama that he had originally worked on he was saying there was there was him and his co-writer Tobias and Adam Prisa was the creator and Adam Prisa was the creator and he and Tobias had had a smaller lower budget show on DR2 which is like our RTE2 and Adam Prisa came to them and said will you co-write with me and they They were like long out of film school but they were in their 30s like Mm -hmm. they had you know gone through film school later and they'd had a big hit and they were like well, why would we write your show? We've had a hit on DR2. We'll probably get our own show on DR1. And Adam was known as a TV chef. 
Yes, he goes, and I'm a Tiwi chef. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, and his, gran- his great grandfather opened Tivoli Gardens. That's what I'm like, yeah, but that's he's really a showman. But Adam was like, because I think you're great and I really want you to write with me. So they agreed some ground rules. Mm. And one of them was when we're writing, if there's one thing that any of the three of us don't like, we chuck it out. Mm. And the three of us work together to make to come up with something better. And afterwards, Rachel and I were saying, that's so Scandinavian. I feel like if we were in Ireland, three people would have said, if two of us like it and the other one doesn't, we go ahead. Mm-hmm. Which would seem more how a democracy works. But of course, the way that they approached it means it's always going to be better, always going to be better. And in fact, I co-write with um, Gavin Ryan now, and our rule is that, that like we'll pitch each other stuff. But if one of us after discussion is still going... Yeah, I don't know. Then we just go, okay, chuck it. Mm-hmm. We don't argue for the thing that the other one doesn't like. But I mean, I think the other thing that we learned from Yepa was um, sorry, just going back to, yeah, the other thing about could we support each other more? At every stage, the producers and directors are like reading each other's scripts, looking at each other's rough cuts, giving each other notes. Yeah. And I actually. With my Irish mindset, like I said to one producer, oh, but might you sometimes be envious of someone else's project and not give the best note you could give? And he said, no, first of all, we're all protecting brand Danish film. But secondly, you just want to show you're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you always give your yeah. best notes. Yeah. But as a result of that, you know, so it would be the equivalent of, say, you know, um, Ed Guiney mm. um, from Element asking the people from Treasure and Parallel and Samson and Blinder, mm. hey, will you look at my script and help me make it better? Will you look at my rough cut and help me make it better? And I, as far as I know, that rarely happens mm. here. Why can't it? No reason why not. Mm. And, you know, whether we're... I think it would be a great thing if we thought more about the fact that we have a brand mm. which is Irish film and it's it's starting now. You know, the work of Screen Ireland is really bearing fruit, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, we've got some world-class filmmakers and people are noticing that and we should be thinking of ourselves as a collective. Yeah, how can we, con- you know, how can we consolidate that? We can be a collective and get behind each other's work yeah. and help it be as good as it can be. Mm, absolutely. Are there any other innovations that you've seen in other countries or systems that you thought were beneficial? I suppose what I'm excited about at the moment is just the enormous demand for content Mm. Um, and, you know, that we have now other options and Mm -hmm. it isn't, we're not just pitching for the one commissioner and that, you know, with Apple and everyone getting involved. I just, I think it'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out. I suppose, interesting as we're on a podcast, I found the whole serial thing a few years ago really interesting that I think that just really showed that people will go wherever story you know, they'll follow yeah. a good story no matter what mm-hmm. medium it's on. Um, and I knew people who were watching. I came late to it, so I, I was able to you know listen to it all back to back. But other people were listening to it as it was being released on mm. a, a weekly basis. And they said they decided to watch the last one all together. And the others have been really individual. And they said it was really kind of weird because they sat yeah. in this office together and they didn't know where to look. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, yeah, you said watch, you <laughs> meant listen to, little, right? Little, you know, iPhone or something mm. like this. That, yeah. um, but I just, I do think that's really interesting. I thought it was really interesting that... Um, when the last episode of Breaking Bad came out, they showed it in the Lighthouse Cinema, and yeah. people wanted that collective mm. experience of watching it yeah. together and yeah. everything. So, uh, and so I think all, lots of lines are blurring, mm. um, and I certainly, 
you know the way when everyone said cinema was dead, you're far too young to remember this, but when, uh, when, 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 when VHSs were first coming out, everyone thought, oh, I do, I remember Betamax. I remember, be- I, I remember, remember watching American, American Ninja yeah. <laughs> in, in like ni- 1984, five or six, I think, and uh, we had a Betamax player, so I remember that. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're looking very well in all oh, those years, Paul. <laughs> um, but it, it's, you know, so I think that kind of anxiety is surely gone for mm. people, um, yeah. the, but but we are going to consume it in completely different ways. And, and you were you were the screens and person stuff. who turned me on to the moth. So mm. when the moth story slam came to Dublin, Rachel mm. said to me, "You've got to go." Yeah. But Rachel said, "You know what really makes my heart sing is that." I can see people queuing up in the rain outside the Sugar Club on a Monday night night or a Tuesday night, I think it is now, you know, to pay their tenor just to hear stories. That's how hungry human Mm. beings are to stories. But going back to, you know, what can we learn from other places? I think it's, I'd love us to be learning from Pixar and Disney, Mm. which is just story, 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 that you spend years and years getting the story right. Because once that's right, it's not impossible, but it's hard for it to get mucked up yeah. later on in the process. But if the script isn't working, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone except perhaps a director who can rewrite as they go, who can fix it. You know, like nobody else's skills can make a screenplay that wasn't working work. Not the actor, not the producer. And like I say, only a director if they're effectively rewriting as they go. Or you're relying on an audience to connect with something a lot less reliable, like the yeah. charm of an actor or something It's, like it's never going to end well. I mean, if, if no. you're, you're, laying, you're laying train tracks as you're going along. You know, mm. Mm. nobody wants to work in that environment. Have you any tips or do's and don'ts, uh, particularly because of our li- listenership, in terms of writers, writer-directors, and there seems to be a lot more writer-directors now, or writers who eventually want to direct, kind of do's and don'ts in terms of starting out or how to get, you know, well, what they're working on in the right hands. As soon as somebody says writer-director to me, I get a little bit anxious that they don't get everything onto the page. And they keep saying, well, I'll sort it out and I'll get that. On yeah, the it'll, be right and, yeah, it'll be all right in post. Yeah, I'll be all right to sort it out in post. And so I, I, I get anxious about that in terms of the, the nitty-gritty of just mm. just getting their script ready. Yeah, I mean, I always say to writer-directors, don't forget when you're on the set, there's going to be 30 people hanging out of you, you know, yeah. saying, yeah. hey, this lens broken, now we don't have another one. Or, you know, this costume doesn't fit that actor. And da, da, da. You won't have time. So just spend your time with the page. But do you mean specifically advice for writer-directors or do you mean writers? Read and commissioned, is that... Well, I suppose hypothetically to dramatically improve. <laughs> their, uh, I suppose at the st- like, in, just in terms of from page to stage, as it were. What what are, what are the? Uh, how can they best position themselves? Say uh, after after they've finished a draft to get well, it in I the right hands. I think you speak interestingly about that gap between the producers looking for something and the writers. Yeah, this yeah. is something I didn't used to say to writers because I felt like it was impolite. Mm. But then I was going. I, actually doing them a disservice by not saying it out loud. Producers constantly come to Rachel and me and say, have you come across any good projects? Where are the projects? Where are the scripts? Mm -hmm. Where are the up-and-coming writers? And we meet a lot of them through our work. And then the writers are always lamenting, I can't get anyone to read my script. I can't Mm -hmm. get anyone to read my script. It's so unfair. I have this great script. I can't get anyone to read it. Or they've read it and I've had no reaction. Yes, or, you know, I sent it to them and they haven't come back to me. And the truth is, it's because there's a massive gap 
you know, if the money's looking for the projects and the projects are looking for the money, mm-hmm. then why are they not finding each other? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because there's an enormous gap. And the main difficulty is that most people are bringing their projects out and sharing them with people long before they're ready for that. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit, I mean, I, I had the pleasure of doing a masterclass with Ed Solomon in Galway this mm. year and Ed wrote Men in Black and Charlie's Angels Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was the thing he wrote in his Whoa. 50s <laughs> yeah. and he is an awesome dude he really is an excellent dude but um, and he's written a lot of personal projects and he had the you know humbleness to say his more personal projects are the ones that have been less successful have mm. been less taken and you were celebrating an anniversary word. of Bill and Ted I think this yeah summer, it was he, he was saying, saying if I thought in my 20s this is what I'd be doing now oh he was very touched yeah. he was yeah. like the fact that people have come out like 25 or 30 years later to watch this movie is just delightful but one of the things he said was he said you have to become a you have to make the work better and you have to make yourself better and I said wait a minute what does that mean make yourself better and he said two things he said one is the relief of finishing a draft is so wonderful that it's very easy for me you know Mm -hmm. he's got 30 plus years of experience and a lot of success but he says it's very easy for me to mistake that relief for the conviction that it's as good as it can be ah okay and a lot of people do that and i thought that's really great and he said i have to manage myself and know No, it's not as good as it can be. Mm -hmm. And he said, the other part of making yourself a better person is take the notes, take the notes, take the notes. And, you know, my co-writer, Gavin Ryan, he loves to quote the line in um, the classic movie Harvey where he goes, you can be oh so clever or oh so nice. (laughs) And it's better to be oh so nice in this business. Mm -hmm. Like as a writer, if you want success, listen to people and hear what they have to say. And my best advice for people who want to get to the next stage, first of all, is stay at outline stage for as long as you can bear it. Mm-hmm. I know you feel like you're not really doing the work or mm-hmm. writing until you write interior Sharon's bedroom night. Mm-hmm. It's handy you say that because I know plenty of writers that have this, working on the same outline for the last a- 18 years. So. Well, send them to us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get what is that you say? www.dramaticimprovement.com No, but um, like it's, I would just say, and this is, again bringing my own experience of being a writer to the to it that you know if i'm there and you know my script editor who is always rachel um (laughs) says to me you don't need these 25 pages i'm like ah i miss my best friend's hen weekend because i stayed home working on those 25 pages and there's this great line in there and this nice little bit of business and i don't want to chuck it out Mm -hmm. whereas if it's an eight page or ten page outline and rachel says you don't need these three paragraphs i go Oh, yeah, I can see that. And I chuck it, you know. Mm. So it's getting that bare bones of story working. And then when you've got a screenplay, I mean, sometimes less experienced people, like when you're saying to them, you know, I couldn't read this, I couldn't understand this. They explain it to you again. And we're saying that's great, but it's not on the page. Mm -hmm. And they explain to you again. It's okay to not know. You know what they're But really what they're saying is that it's, it's the reader's fault that they didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And it rarely is. Mm-hmm. You know, it rarely is. The most common thing... You're not going to be in the room with the commissioners or the financiers mm-hmm. explaining what your script... Yeah. And God forbid say, you would be in there explaining to, to them that they weren't smart enough it's to yeah, understand yeah. literally what's on the page. But the most common thing that we say yeah. to writers when we're working to them is, like, 
if we, we say, I didn't understand what was happening here between these two people and they explain it. And the most common thing we were saying to writers is, oh, that's amazing. It's not on the page. So you just need to write that. Mm. So, you know, it's use it's communication. Yeah. And, and asking other people, how is it landing? And if it's not landing the way you intended going, OK, how can I make that clearer rather than saying, oh, OK, I see this. You're not very smart. Let me explain this to you yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's <laughs> a big part of it. And the other thing that we recommend, well, or I recommend as it being a sensitive flower when it comes to early drafts of like my work. Like all of us, really. I think like we all are. Like I always, I always take a minute before I work with a writer and I think about the fact that it's something sacred. Mm. It's something that's originated with them that they've created. In other words, it's a little bit of their soul is the way that I think about it. And, you know, Rachel talks about the fact that, you know, we are midwives. Like, so we're trying to help this be um, a process which is going to end up with a process that could be enjoyable and could end up with something really beautiful. So when somebody's showing me that, I tend to ask questions. So I would say to writers, when you show your work to somebody else, say to them, I'm a sensitive flower (laughs) (laughs) and I don't want you to say I didn't like your character or I thought this was stupid or it was really Mm. derivative or I was bored. Because who needs that, right? Even though that may be the reader's (laughs) experience. Ask them to answer questions Mm -hmm. or ask you questions. And the questions that we always say is whose story is it? What's their life dream? What do they want? You know, and what's their interior battle? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and so there are questions, but also always to frame notes when your friends are showing you their work, frame your notes back as why is she doing that? Mm -hmm. Rather than, I don't Mm. believe she would do that. Mm. Yeah, But Rachel, you talked about the Dharma. Well, just I think what what keeps us going is the absolute pleasure of seeing a writer blossom and the absolute pleasure of witnessing the creative process. I believe that's called Dharma in the Buddhist religion. That the, What's the service that you're giving to mm. society? And yeah, I think yeah. that's where we, that's the part of working with writers that we really enjoy is seeing them come forward and, and communicate fulfill, what they're fulfill potential. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And communicate what that really is inside them that they're they're trying to get out. Does that happen? I, I like it's that sounds really beautiful, but does how often does that really happen where someone really hits like really hits the church I, bell? I think there's rhythms in, in projects and there's always a bit where you're fed up and then there's other bits, there's highs and lows. It's a real roller coaster ride, isn't it? I suppose but it's that's only for me, never mind the writer. <laughs> but I, I suppose it's two stages, right? It's like, okay, they they've made the script the best it can be, and then there's the execution of it. How often do the two forces come together and really gel? Well, I just go back to your asking about like that ringing of the church bell, you know, like how often does that happen? I had not heard this expression until I went to Los Angeles and I spend a bit of time there now and they talk about breaking the story. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? You broke the story. (laughs) Can can you fix it? (laughs) And they meant break it open, like finally the heart of it. And I found now... That when we break the story, um, this sounds really affected, but the hairs on um, my forearm stand up. But there's a moment in the room and I often say to, like, because we often work with more than one writer at a time and I'll go, can you feel it? Can you feel it, guys? Yeah, That's it. We just broke the story. That kind of ding ringing of the church bell is probably rare enough. Mm. Probably happens two or three times a year. So most of it is more work a day. But Mm. there is a moment where you get the draft and you go... 
that's it. We yeah. found it. It's working. Well, maybe that's also a piece of advice is to try and find a support group like that because we always encourage people to try and triangulate the relationship mm. and it not always be like a producer and director versus the writer. Mm. Mm. So sometimes to have another writer in the room who's doing it because that's what we do in the Screen Training Ireland courses that we do when we're... Um, you know, when we're working with screenwriters is that they carry on with the projects with one another. And that seems to be really helpful for the writers, doesn't it? That they get more than one voice reflecting back at them. It's very helpful for us as well, because sometimes a writer can feel like it. We'll spend, say, in two hours, we'll spend five minutes talking about what's working and what's great. Yeah. And the rest of the time is to go, OK, Whoa, this is horsey. a... Yeah, <laughs> you know, and so that can feel like they're just getting criticism after criticism, you know, if we're not you know, handling it properly. <laughs> but if there's a third person there, it feels like a consultation, consultative process, you know, mm, yeah. and it feels like, how can we all make yeah, this work? Yeah. yeah. So mm. so we we love that. And also, you know, another pair of eyes will catch something that one of us might have yeah. missed or come up with a solution that one of us would not have. Um, so that's a really fun thing to do. Um, but I think, you know, that Ira Glass, the American broadcaster, he talks about... He has a little video essay and he talks about when you want to create something. Have you seen this, Paul? No, You're no, nodding. No, no. He's I know I, I he's you know Ira Glass. Uh, this American a life, fantastic yeah. podcaster, right? Yeah. Um mm -hmm. but he talks about you have an ambition to create something, let's say a screenplay, and you have an idea in your head, which is only, you know, a, a roadmap as or a blueprint for a film, as we all know. So you have an idea of how good you want this to be. And your first attempt is usually very far short of how good you want it to be. Yeah. And that's the point at which most people give up. But they shouldn't, because the space between your first attempt and how good you want it to be is your taste. And I would always add into this. And if you were delighted with your first attempt, you would be Ed Wood. <laughs> you would <laughs> or have or one of the McDonough's. <laughs> But you would if you're delighted with your first go, then, you know, you that just means your taste is not very good. But so if you're disappointed with your first go, be delighted mm. because that means you've got good taste. Yeah. But that's the point at which most people give up, mm. you know, mm. and we talk about I mean, the thing that I think the reverse of being delighted when we see people fulfilling their creative potential and writing the thing that they set out to write is when we see people quitting, um, which is probably, you know, the more common experience. I would say two out of three people don't persist when it gets mm. difficult. Yeah. And that's discouraging. Um, and they shouldn't be discouraged because actually um, we would talk about it's like a, a kid, you know, stands up and falls down and stands up and falls down and stands up and falls down. And at no stage did you ever say to yourself, maybe I'm just not a walker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like maybe I'll just quit on this walking thing. Yeah. And if you have the desire to write, that's really deep yeah. in you. Yeah. Don't ever for a minute go, maybe I'm just not a writer. Yeah. Because do you know what? You will always be a writer. You'll just be a frustrated writer and you'll just be an embittered writer yeah. and you'll be an unexpressed writer. So the thing is, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Mm -hmm. But take the note, take the note, take the note, take the note. And take the help. D yeah. Do you have any tips in terms of practicality of we all have we all have to support ourselves? You're very busy. How do you get how do you encourage writers? How do you um, actually get the time? How do you manage time? Not, Not very well. It's well. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I would say 
I would say separate your creativity from your earning until yeah. you're at a particular point. There is a long and honourable tradition of people driving taxis and waiting on tables and doing whatever they have to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult to be in a career where you're supposed to sign up and suit up and try to climb the corporate ladder and also have a creative life, mm-hmm. which is why jobs like waiting on tables and driving taxis that don't take up a lot of brain space are really, really good, you know. But I think... You know, if you have hustle in you, hustle. Mm. You know, I mean, certainly I used to earn some of my living writing content for websites, you know, 10 years ago. There was good money to be made in Mm. that. There may still be, you know, Mm -hmm. I kept some journalism on the go for a long time. Uh, You know, we get asked to do stuff in the corporate world and stuff like that. Oh, we love doing that story Mm. and business, you know. But I would just say to people, if you're if the only way you're going to pay your rent next month is if Screen Ireland funds you and then Screen Ireland doesn't fund you, mm. you're going to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. So separate your creativity from your income, I think, is yeah. a really good idea. If you can find little ways to make money from your creativity, great. Yeah. But prioritise your creativity. But I always say to people, you can write a screenplay if you give it a good four hours a week. Okay. You do not need to be yeah. working 40 hours a week. Yeah. You will have a really good screenplay in six months if you give it four hours a week that are absolutely sacrosanct, whether that's you get up at four o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning one day, which like I believe is how Stephanie Preissner works. Like she gets up, she at gets up every day every day and works from early. five till nine. I know someone similarly, yeah. Mm. You know, sound. or four till nine, something like that. Or if it's just your Saturday morning or just your Sunday afternoon, but nothing yeah. else interferes with yeah, that. Yeah. Or if, God forbid, you know, you have to go to a funeral, you find those four hours somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But you consistently always do it. You would have a new... You would have a well-developed screenplay, mm. you know, if you could just do that. Okay. And I so would just go, don't jump the gun in terms of going, I've sold one script, hooray, I'm yeah, a screenwriter. I'm yeah. landed. Um, one last thing just before we wrap up. <coughs> Annie, uh, have you, very quickly, advice for what you would give your younger selves starting out in this journey? That's a fantastic question. <laughs> We're both uh, looking at each other. <gasps> I would have said... Mute, um, a rare condition. Yes, mute, a yeah, very rare condition. Wow. I would have said... Um, well, no. I mean, we couldn't have found our way to the film business any sooner than we did. Um, no, I've so that was enjoyed just, the journey. So I've really enjoyed the journey. I think... Um, I suppose the same thing that we'd say to other people, which is keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And... You know, I've absolutely been through uh, the period of going, maybe I'm not a, a good enough writer. Like, I, I, I don't doubt that I'm a writer because as long as I can remember, I've been writing and telling stories. But I often doubt whether or not I am a good enough writer. But the fact is, I can get better if I just keep writing. Mm-hmm. And I wish I'd known that sooner. You know, and, and, you know, what I say now is I'm good enough. I may not be amazing, mm. but I can make the work better. Um, I wish I'd found a co-writer sooner yeah, okay. because, you know, that's been a really wonderful experience. But again, you can't make that happen any sooner than it happens. Yeah. And just any co-writer wouldn't be as great as the co-writer that I have. Gavin Ryan, I love you. Before we before we're out the gap. Uh, I'm. I, I'm, I 
can't really think of anything. I, I think um, I've been a massive course goer, which I've really enjoyed. So I think any kind of training that you can get in terms of the people that you meet on it and, and all the different approaches to it. I think I've really been lucky mm. in terms of what I've done that. Um, but I, I don't have advice. In ter- so I suppose I'd look back and say, yeah, that was the right thing to mm. do. Um, so just I, live your life. I, That's I your advice. Live my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my life's been great. Um, I, was, I wasn't very Sorry, no, no, taken. I, I wasn't very good at post-production. So I suppose, I mean, at the same time, it took a while to find my way there. Um, I, I, I worked in a production company where I did a little bit of everything, including accounts, which really stressed me Be a grafter, I guess. A gra- yeah, no. Be a grafter, I suppose. Be a grafter. Turn well, your no, hat- but I'm glad I have the knowledge of how those other bits of the film industry yeah. work. So I, I don't, and I suppose it convinces me that I'm in the I'm in the right one. Yeah. Um. Like that. That's something that really confuses me. Like in the BBC, they promote script editors to become producers, and I don't have the talents or mm. the gifts that mm. it takes to be a producer. It doesn't suit my personality at all. That wouldn't be the the way for for mm. me to go. Um. So. Uh, yeah, and it's not that I think our lives are absolutely perfect, but I think oh, Jesus, we do is. have yeah. we do have. I guess we're, we're we're old enough to have the perspective to go. Every single experience that we've had has fed into mm-hmm. where we are now, yeah. and. No regrets. Yeah, take yeah. the notes. Yeah, take the take the. <laughs> We've taken the notes that life has given <laughs> us as well. Not, not to think that any situation is permanent. So if you're struggling at the moment, if you're failing at the moment, to to know that the path will turn. I suppose. I mean, in, in every part of life, yeah, yeah. that mm. it's where you are now isn't isn't permanent. Absolutely, persevere. Beautiful okay. advice. We could, oh, we could yes. chat to you all day. Thank you so yes. much. <laughs> uh, That's been great, it's and you know, and we're also big fans of the work that Film Network Ireland does. So yeah. thank you, Pauls, both of you for thanks what you much. do for us yeah. and for the industry. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Cheers.